Are you all set for Thanksgiving? Uh, Christmas? Uh, Maybe. It's coming. It's coming. In 1965, a new TV show came out. There was an incredibly cool show at that point in time. Uh, Black and white, it was at that point in time called Lost in Space. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was the story of this family, the Robinson family, that uh, their job is to go to Alpha Centauri and uh, to the Alpha Centauri system and establish a colony where Earth people can go and, uh, and live there. Um, it's got the mom and the dad and I think a, a, another guy, a major, that's there, um, Will and Penny, their two kids, and, and then Dr. Smith. Sneaks on board, right? And his job is to derail everything. But I think that the star of the show was not any of them. It was this robot, right? The robot looked kind of like a trash can with, um, with, uh, dryer vent arms, um, you know, uh, and, and, uh, he would have all kinds of information, but his most famous line was what? Danger, Will Robinson. Warning, yeah, danger, Will Robinson. His his job, no matter what was going on, was if the if the environment was hostile, if you know there was bad stuff in the air, if there were aliens that were going to come attack, he would always be with Will, and he would say, "Danger, Will Robinson. Danger, Will Robinson." Um, great show. He he doesn't quite look like R2-D2 or C-3PO, right? Um, not nearly as endearing. But if you grew up in that time period. Or you existed on Nick at Night in another time period, uh, you know that robot and that show. Fun, fun, fun stuff. Um, the uh, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, just had a glitch in my thought process. Um, when I, about the same time that that show came out, my family lived in Lancaster, Ohio. And uh, I, I was a little guy. Um, anybody ever been to Lancaster, Ohio? It's a little a town south of Columbus. Um, in the middle of town, there is this um, this mountain. There, it's uh, it's this. There's this big, large area that's called Mount Pleasant. And um, if you're from Lancaster, it's a it's a common thing to go and um, to hike on this mountain, climb up the mountain, and um, and it looks out over the city of Lancaster, and it has a really uh, sheer face on the front of it. You climb to the top of the mountain, and then there's a path that takes you down to the edge where you can look out and, and see the city. It's a pretty cool thing. As a little kid, I was a preschooler at this point in time. I remember our family uh, hiked up there one day and, um, and started down the path. Um, I, I said if, uh, if Deb were here, she would tell you stories because she's seen the pictures. I, as a little guy, I was, I was a pretty fat little kid with a burr haircut and black horn rim glasses with a patch over one eye because I had lazy eye. Um, and so picture this little roly-poly kiddo um, heading down the path. And I started down the path and, start, and the walk turned into a run. And I'm, I'm running down the top of this towards the towards the cliff face. I remember my dad yelling, stop, stop, stop. Um, and I was, I had so much momentum going, I couldn't stop. And my dad ended up running, inter, uh, you know, intersected me, swooping me off to keep me literally from running off the edge of the cliff. Because back in 1964, 65, they didn't have fences at the edges of cliffs like they do now. Um, I, I, the, 
that, that whole warning thing is really important to us. Any of you can think back uh, about situations that you've had with your own kids where they've been placed in danger. And as a parent, you say, stop! And, and the energy in your voice says, man, this is critical. You've got to stop now. We're in this series called Holy, Holy, and Holy. Um, letters, two letters written by, by Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends. And chapter 2 of the second letter that Peter wrote, it really is a warning kind of a chapter. It's, it's danger, Will Robinson kind of thing. So if you, if you haven't yet, take out your Bibles, open, open the North Point app. It will take you where you need to go. Uh, and if you want to take out a Bible from the back of the pew in front of you, you can do that. I'm going to, we're going to work through this entire chapter uh, in the next few minutes. And uh, I want you to hear the warning that Peter issues for us. Verse 1, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Peter says, danger, Will Robinson, danger, church. Followers of Jesus, warning, 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 there are going to be false teachers, false prophets in your midst. There are going to be people that teach you something that's contrary to the rest of Scripture. Uh, the, uh, in that passage that we just read, there's the word heresy. Heresy is not a word that we use very often, heretical. What's that mean? Basically, it means something that's taught that's in contrast with what Orthodox Christianity has taught for 2,000 years. So it's, it's, it's the kind of person that gets up and says, oh, I've got this new word from the Lord, this new understanding of Scripture. You need to hear this. Heresy is something that's in contrast to what the church has taught since the time of Jesus. Um, you know what? There, there are going to be false teachers in your world. And, and the big picture, the 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 big takeaway from today's message is you've got to be careful who you listen to. You've got to study on your own. You've got to know the word of God so that your faith doesn't get derailed. It's critical for you to know the truth, to discern what's right and wrong, what's true, what's false in the teaching of others. Don't blindly accept what you hear from me. Don't blindly accept what you hear from Jake. Certainly don't blindly accept what you hear from Chris. All right. <laughs> don't blindly accept what you hear from TV preachers, right? From voices on the internet, the podcast that you listen to, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, who is it that we go to that we just automatically say, oh, they're, they're good, they're good. I, I, you know, I'll take anything that they say and just listen. I'm telling you, don't listen. Don't blindly accept what Andy, Andy Stanley or Charles Stanley say, what Joel Osteen or Rick Warren, 
what Paul Washer or John MacArthur, what Joyce Meyer or Beth Moore, what Joby Martin or Chris Hodges, what Ed Young or Robert Morris, what Francis Chan or David Platt, James Dobson or Max Lucado, T.D. Jakes or Tony Evans, Bill Putman or Kenneth Hagan, David Jeremiah or Kyle Eidelman, Chuck Swindoll or Matt Chandler, don't blindly accept what they teach. We have a responsibility to know God's word, to study God's word, and to discern what's being taught, to make sure that it matches with, with, um, with the teaching of all of Scripture. Paul, when, uh, when uh, he was sent out and, and uh, Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas went out and planted churches, one of the places that they planted a church was in this town called Berea. Um, and and here's the challenge that I want that I want to give you today. Be a be a Berean. If you're filling in the blanks on the app, be a Berean. What's what's that mean? What's that about? This is this is what uh, Luke writes in Acts 17. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. What do, you, what do you think about? Paul's the guy who wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament, right? And the Bereans examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. How do we live lives that are holy, holy? How do we live markedly different from the rest of the world? It's by studying scripture. It's by, by examining what's taught to make sure that it's consistent with scripture. Uh, Diocletian uh, was, uh, lived in 303 AD, and, and he basically, uh, he wanted to eradicate Christianity. Um, one of his aides said to him about Christians at that point in time, in, in uh, 300 AD, said, they are a people of the book. Followers of Christ are a people of the book. They studied the Bible. So Diocletian made it his responsibility, his, his, uh, his aim to, to uh, eliminate Bible, to, to uh, destroy every copy of Scripture that he could. And he did. Um, fortunately, by the grace of God, he didn't eradicate the Bible. The scripture, scripture was hidden and it lasted and it came down through us. But uh, Diocletian wanted to, wanted to wipe it out because the, the followers of Jesus were people of the book. Wouldn't it be great if we at North Point were known as a people of the book? That we were the ones who were studying like the Bereans, um, God's word. Uh, many of you were around at the beginning of the year and, and uh, we gave a challenge and, and uh, challenged to read all the way through the Bible in 90 days. A uh, whole bunch of folks did it. Really cool. Some of you I know are, are still kind of working your way through. You got kind of derailed. You're not maybe there yet. Uh, here's, here's a challenge for you for 2020. I, I would encourage you to not just read through Scripture, but to study through the Word of God. To, to start the process of, of, of really trying to dive in and digest God's Word. Make it a part of your life. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. How do you do that? Maybe you're here today and you say, man, I, I, I've hardly ever read the Bible. I don't really know how to study. What, what kind of tools can I use? What, uh, 
What, what can I do? Um, we have a class that we do periodically, a group that gets together called Bible Matters. When you see that, when you hear about that here at North Point, sign up for that. It'll, it'll give you some specific tools about how to study God's Word. But uh, maybe, the, maybe the place to start until we have that class is to, is to get yourself a study Bible uh, now. You know, go out this week, get one for Christmas, whatever. Find a study Bible that will give you some tools to help you understand um, who individual books were written to, why they were written, that kind of thing that will help cross-reference, help you compare and contrast scriptures in different places. Study Bible is a great place to do that. Um, if if uh, maybe you don't use a, a physical uh, book, uh, the Blue Letter Bible app is a great tool that has lots of things that can help you as you study scripture. Download that and use that in your study. One of the things that I would challenge you to do is to begin to memorize scripture. Maybe to, maybe to start with individual verses, but then to begin to think about blocks of Scripture. Four or five verses together, maybe an entire chapter, maybe, if you can, an entire book, because then you've got the tool in your heart, in your head, that when you begin to hear somebody preach and, or, or teach and it doesn't sound right, that you're able to say, I know that's not right, because this is what God's Word says. You don't even have to go to study. You know it. It's just there giving you direction. Um, uh, studying God's Word is, is part of why it's so important to be in a disciple-making friendship or in a life group because it's, easy, it's easier, I think, in the context of a life group to, to be able to say, you know what, I heard this guy preach that I heard this person teach this particular thing and it doesn't sound right to me. What do you all think? And to be in that relationship where you can ask that question. Um, I, I know that this this challenge that I'm going to give you right now is it's um, uh, it's it's uh, it's it really is earth shaking, uh, something you've never heard before. Everything that you find on the internet is not necessarily true. All right, uh, it's not necessarily good. It's not necessarily right, and so be careful. Uh, there is lots and lots of good material, good study material, on the web. But there's lots of stuff that's, that's way off base as well. So uh, be careful. Be careful. Peter says God's going to hold these false teachers accountable. Verse 3. In their greed, these, uh, he, he says God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. He says, there's, there's going to be judgment. These guys are good. They're good teachers. They're good speakers. Be careful. There's going to be judgment for them. Peter says, there's judgment is coming, but there's a pardon that's going to be available as well. There's going to be a judgment, but God has also provided a pardon. When we read this next section of Scripture, I want you to look at the contrast that's there, the, the assurance that judgment is coming. Danger, danger, Will Robinson but the pardon that's available from God as well. Verse 4. If God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, judgment, judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, judgment, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, pardon, hope, that's there. 
If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly judgment, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, pardon and hope, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deed he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, pardon, and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Judgment. This is especially true of those fellow, those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Something that's really interesting to me in those verses, what's it, what does it say about Lot? Um, Lot was tormented in his soul by the lawless deeds that he saw. How do you respond to the wickedness that's around you? Does that torment you or does that entice you? That's the challenge that's there. Peter says two things are going on. There's going to be judgment. Be aware, be ready. There's going to be judgment. But I've made, God has made a way for, there to be, for you to experience a pardon, for you to be spared from that judgment. On the walls of the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C. are these words that were written by Thomas Jefferson. I've, I've used them before because I, I love these words. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. If I, if I can tweak that, I, I tremble for our church when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. I tremble for my family. I tremble for me when I reflect that God is just. His justice will not sleep forever. Verse 10, bold and arrogant, they're not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings, yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They're like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals, they too will perish. Do you hear danger, Will Robinson? Peter's saying, man, there's going to be judgment. Even the angels are aware of it. Knowing that judgment is coming has got to transform our lives now. It needs to shape the way that we live day by day, moment by moment. It's easy for us to think, you know what? I know there's going to be judgment I know I need to get some stuff right in my life, spiritually, in my relationship with God. I'm going to do that later. I'm going to do that when I retire. I'm going to do that when my kids are out of the house. I'm going to do that when I get this new job and I've got a little bit more time. I'm going to do that. I'm going to spend some time doing that when I go on vacation. I'm going to do that when my kids are a little bit older. Judgment's coming, and we don't know when that will come. You know, uh, I, I taught for four years at a college in southwest Missouri. Uh, they, were, they were four fun years. And I, I like most professors, um, handed out syllabus on the first day of class that said, here are all your assignments. Um, most every professor does that, and most every professor has an assignment they give that's due at the end of the, uh, of the, the term called a term paper, Right? 
That syllabus will define what that's supposed to be about. And the goal, as a professor, the goal is that your students are working on that project the entire semester, right? That's the goal. That's why it's called a term paper. When do most term papers get written? The night before, sometimes the morning of... um, We, yeah, sometimes they try and turn them in late. Um, here, here's, the, here's the deal. It's easier for us to have a term paper mentality about a relationship with Jesus and think, oh man, if I can just make stuff right, right before I die, everything's going to be good. Only problem is we don't know when the term ends. There is no guarantee for us that we live to be 50 or 60 or 80 or 100 or 20. Any of us on our way home today could face Jesus, could, could come before God because we could die. Our, the reality that judgment is coming has got to shape the way that we live now. It's Peter's call to be holy, holy, to live markedly different from the rest of the world. To live in light of the reality of our relationship with Jesus. We, we, all, um, we all understand that judgment causes a change in our behavior, right? Um, when, when, when my wife goes to visit our kids in Missouri, and the house is in great shape when she leaves, and she's gone for four, five, six, eight, ten days. Um, the house doesn't stay in quite the same condition that it does on the night before she's coming back. Because at that point in time, I know that she's coming back and I want the house to be the way that it was when she left, right? I want it to be perfect for her. So I scramble and do all that stuff at the last minute. We don't know when that last minute is. And so our, the way that we live our lives has got to reflect the reality that judgment is coming and that God is the one who determines that particular time. We need to live markedly different from the world. We need to be holy, holy, entirely holy in the way that we live. But the reality is that we're holy with that E. The world leaks into us on a regular basis. Verse 13, uh, these, these, uh, these false teachers will be paid back with harm for the harm that they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasure while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the path, the, the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and, and restrained the prophet's madness. As Peter writes, he's saying, danger, danger, Will Robinson, don't live like this. Y'all know the story of Balaam? Do you remember the story of Balaam? Some of you are saying, yeah. Some of you are saying, 
Balaam, who's that? Never heard that guy's name before. Uh, Balaam was this prophet in the Old Testament, and he wasn't a Jew, but somehow he had the ability to kind of tell the future, to bless people, nations, projects, that kind of stuff, and, and, um, and they would be blessed, or to curse them and they'd be cursed. And that he sought that direction for, for whether to bless or curse from God. So, so Balaam's there. This is uh, the time as that the nation of Israel is finishing their wandering in the wilderness. They've come out of Egypt. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years. They're ready to go into the promised land. And, and Balak, who is the head of the Moabite nation, sees this nation that's coming towards the promised land to the place where the Moabites live. And it's this nation of somewhere probably between two and four million people. And Balak says, man, we've got to do something about this. We've got to get Balaam on this to curse these people so that when we go to battle, they're going to die. And so um, Balak sends his emissaries, sends some money to, to uh, Balaam and says, hey, uh, we want you to come talk to me. Uh, Balak says to Balaam, we want you to come talk to me. Come, come back with these guys and see me. And, and Balaam says, you know what? I've, before I go with you, I've got to go inquire of God. So he goes and prays, and God says, don't go. You can't do what, what they want you to do. Don't go. And, um, and so Balaam comes back the next morning, and he says to these guys, God, I talked to God. God said, I can't go, so I can't go. And so they go back and they tell Balak. And Balak at that point in time says, look, we've got to have him prophesy and curse this nation or, or they're going to wipe us out. So he sends back like his top officials, the richest and most influential people, and he sends back like a whole bunch of money. If, if Balaam prophesies, he's going to get rich, all right, if he does what Balak wants him to do. To do, and so um, and so they come and they talk to Balaam and they say, hey, "Come back and, and talk to Balak. We want you to do this this prophecy thing." And and Balaam says, "You know what? God already told me I can't do that. God's already told me I can't do that." And they said, "We're pretty we're pretty powerful. We got a lot of money." And Balaam said, "You know what? God told me not to do that. But let me go talk to him again." Maybe he'll change his mind. And so Balaam goes, and, and God, frankly, is pretty angry with Balaam because he's been clear to Balaam about what he's supposed to do and what he's not supposed to do. But God says to Balaam, look, if you want to go, go ahead and go. But you can only say what I tell you to say. So Balaam hops on his donkey they had to go see Balak, um, and, um, and they're, they're traveling down this path, and, the, and um, on the path, on the road where they're heading, there is this angel with a sword that's ready to kill both the Balaam and the donkey. The donkey sees, it, sees the angel, but Balaam doesn't, and the donkey goes off the path into, into a field beside, and Balaam gets all mad at him because he's not seen anything, and he beats the donkey. They get back on the path, they continue to go, and they come to a place in a vineyard where there's a wall on one side and a wall on the other side, and there's the angel again that's ready to kill both of them. And the donkey crashes into the sidewall and, and crushes Balaam's foot in the process. Balaam gets really angry and beats the donkey again. They keep going, and they come to a spot where the path is incredibly narrow, and there is the angel with the sword, and there's no place for the donkey to go, and the donkey sits down on the ground, just stops, and Balaam beats him again. And here's what Numbers uh, 22 says. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, 
What have I done to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey. Now, you would think that that would have his attention enough, right? God supernaturally has this voice coming from the donkey. The donkey is able to communicate supernaturally. Balaam answered the donkey, you've made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey, speaks again, says to Balaam, am I not your donkey which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, Balaam said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. Balaam realized that the donkey had saved his life. The rest of the story, Balaam goes on, goes to Balak. Balak takes him out and shows him the nation of Israel, puts him on a high hill, and, uh, and Balaam begins to prophesy. But instead of cursing the nation of Israel, he blesses them. Balak gets crazy and, and, and is mad at him, takes him to another place and, and says, okay, here's another part of the nation of Israel. Curse these guys so we can at least attack these guys. Balaam prophesies again and blesses the nation of Israel, not curses. Three times that happens, that he blesses them instead of, instead of cursing them. Interesting, interesting story from the Old Testament that the New Testament talks about multiple times. Here's the, here's the question for us recognizing that judgment is coming, when we know that God has given us a clear word on how to live, when God gives us direct instruction about what to do, what not to do, how to have a relationship with him, do we listen and accept and obey? Or do we say, "Mm, God, did you really mean that? I, I know that's what you said, but that just doesn't seem right in our culture. Maybe I can do this instead. And if there's money involved, it's even worse. That was was the appeal of, of Balaam. Verse 17, these people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity for people are slaves to whatever's mastered them. If they've escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. A sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in mud. Understand this from from those verses. Sin is a taskmaster. We will become slaves to sin apart from Jesus. There's judgment coming, and we need to live holy lives. We need to live in relationship to Jesus. Judgment is coming, but God's made a way for a pardon through Jesus. Um, Peter, Peter uses this, this incredible picture of a dog that returns to his vomit to say, to, to say, you know, you can turn your back on God. And the picture that's there is, is when you know God, that the picture that's there is of a dog that gets sick and gets rid of the stuff in its, in its stomach that's making him sick. And when it's, once he does that and feels better, he goes back and begins to lick that stuff up. If, you, if you've got pets, you know that happens, right? It's the, it's the picture of a, of, a, of a sow 
of a pig that you wash them all off, you get, you get them all cleaned up, and you send him back out in the field, and it doesn't take any time at all before he's wallowing in the mud again. This particular passage is a difficult passage because there's lots of people that, that, um, that, 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 that uh, fuss about how to understand this. Here's the big thing that comes out of it, I, I think. Uh, it's the challenge to not tap out. Don't tap out. If you're a follower of Jesus, don't turn your back on him and walk away. You know, uh, in the in mixed martial art kind of thing, when you're caught, when you're in a hold, you may look healthy, but if your arm's being twisted and it's going to break, you tap out. Peter says, don't tap out in your walk with Jesus. Um, this, this is a passage, these verses are, are, are hard doctrinally. If you come from Reformed background theologically, if you've been influenced by the writings of Calvin, if you believe in eternal security, once saved, always saved, this is a difficult passage because when you read it and, and you read through it, it looks like you can walk away from your faith, right? If you come from an Arminian kind of a background, you, you read this and you say, man, this is scary because I can, I can turn my back on Jesus and walk away. At North Point, make, make, uh, let me just be clear, big picture about this. We have six majors that we say these are critical things for us, things that, that these shape who we are and what we do, and, and, and if you're going to be a part of North Point, you need to know that these are foundational things that will not change for us. We believe that God is the creator of the universe, that he is holy and just, that he's, uh, that he's merciful, but he never changes. That's the, that's the first of the six. The second is that Jesus is God in the flesh. That Jesus lived, uh, that he was fully man, fully God, that he lived on earth and lived a sinless life. The third is that the Holy Spirit is the, is the presence of God that lives in followers of Jesus here on earth, that convicts, that leads, that guides, that helps us understand scripture. Um, the, the, the fourth is that the Bible is the word of God, that it never changes, that that's the place that we go for answers. It doesn't matter what I say, what Chris says, what Jake says. What matters is what Scripture says. The fifth is that man is um, man sin and has separated himself from God, that he is in desperate need of a Savior, that he can't have a right relationship with God by doing good works, by doing anything. It's only by Jesus. The sixth is that salvation can only come through the blood of Jesus, through Jesus' sacrifice for us. All other doctrinal stuff, we would say, let's have, let's have deep conversations about what Scripture says, and we can land in different places. And that's okay. On those six, we need, we need to be synced up on that. So if, if you're Reformed or if you're Ar- Arminian, I'd love to talk to you about that if you, if you want to discuss that in this particular passage. But, but they're secondary kind of issues. They're not majors. Right? That's not a major issue. That's a minor issue. I think the whole question about eternal security um, is because is we don't, we don't want to live in fear, saying, oh, am I right with God? Am I not right with God? Am I right with God? Am I not right with God? And that, and that we're kind of paralyzed because Satan's all the time saying, oh, you did that. that, that you know, you're not saved anymore. Here's the best way I can describe it. I'm a, I'm a ruble. I am a ruble. If you knew my dad, you would know I look like my dad. I walk like my dad. I talk like my dad. Uh, my mannerisms are like my dad's. I laugh at the same things that my dad laughed at. I care about the things that my dad cared about. 
There is no doubt if my dad were here today that, that you would know, oh, yeah, he's your, he's your father. You're, his son. You're connected because of that relationship. I would even say that I live in a world now we're able to experience vacations. We go to the cottage because of my relationship with my dad. He provided all that for me. In the context of that relationship, I never worry. I, well, let, let me say this. There are times that I've done stuff that I'm sure my dad w- was like, what are you thinking? That grieved him. Decisions that I made, stuff that I did. But I never questioned whether I was a ruble. My relationship with him defines everything else. If you're at a place that, 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 you, that you worry, oh, am I right or not? Am I, am I right with God or not? I would challenge you to deepen your relationship with Jesus. Because when your relationship with Jesus is right, it doesn't mean that you don't ever sin, that you don't still make mistakes, but that relationship defines every aspect of your life, every aspect of, of who you are. Judgment's coming. Danger. Danger, Will Robinson. Don't follow false teachers. Know scripture. Judgment's coming, but Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. We know, we know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. We often forget 17 that says that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There's the judgment piece, but there's a pardon that's available through Jesus. I want to encourage you today to study God's word, to live holy, holy lives, and to take the steps that you need to to dive into God's word, to protect yourself from the holiness with an E, the world that leaks into us. If you don't know Jesus, if, if you want to have a relationship with him, if you want to say yes to him and you've never done that, uh, I'm, I'm not going to lead you in a prayer right now because I want you to take that step willingly on your own to, to, to decide this is who I am, this is what I want to do. I'm going to be down here. You can come down after the service and we'll talk and pray and, and talk about what that looks like for you. And if you do know him, live holy, holy lives grounded in God's word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thanks for Peter writing to us this word of warning. God, our desire is that we would live markedly different from the world, that we wouldn't look like the world, act like the world, think like the world, but that we would be constantly shaped and refined by your word by the power of Jesus. Help us live in that way, in that light, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together.